going to be talking in Romans 10 today about beautiful feet. Now don't worry, we're not doing uh, foot washing this morning, so if you didn't take a shower, it'll still work out. Um, we, uh, we love, I love this quote by Timothy Keller, he says, life-changing repentance begins where blame-shifting ends. Life-changing repentance begins where blame-shifting ends. Now listen, a lot of us love to blame-shift. I know I hate taking responsibility for things in my life that I don't want to be held responsible for. Little known fact about me, I'm a talker. I don't know if you don't get, why are you laughing? That's not nice. Uh, I always got trouble in school for my motor mouth. Uh, I didn't get into National Honor Society because of my tongue. I actually got kicked out of the SATs because I wouldn't shut up. In 11th grade, in chemistry class, my teacher got to the point where he had to put my chair out in the hallway so that all I could see was the teacher and the whiteboard. That I couldn't even make eye contact with the other students. I had a problem. But you know what I like to declare? Wasn't my fault. That was not my fault. The problem is my parents. <laughs> See, my, it's nature-nurture, right? By nature, my dad's Italian. That's why I talk with my hands. That's why I'm over the top. And my mom, have you, have you met my mom, right? <laughs> have, you, have you heard my mom? Like, it's nurture, right? And so nature and nurture, uh, apple tree, right? It's just, that was just the way I was born. And I would tell them, when they would try to get me in trouble for talking too much, listen, you made me this way. And now you're lying in the bed that you made. And you know what? That did not go over well at all. <laughs> still got grounded, still had to go to my room. It just didn't work. It was weird. But the, the reality is, victimhood for us can be a weirdly addicting drug. That the you and I, we love to blame shift. Uh, we like to say the world is hating on me. That my, it's my parents' fault, or there's this kind of, at work, all my coworkers are conspiring against me. That, that we might say the government, it's, it's the government's fault, Right? And we do whatever we can to not have to take responsibility for our own actions and responses to our circumstance. And this is what Paul anticipates the Jewish people doing in his argument here in Romans. That we're coming out of chapter 9 that says God is sovereign. So he knows the Jews are going to say, God, you made us this way. Like, you're sovereign. You put us in this position. It's your fault. And we're going to see today as we read chapter 10 whether or not that line of reasoning is accurate. Now, now, to remember, to catch us up to speed with where we are in the story of the Bible, so this to make sense for us, God made this unconditional promise to Abraham. Unconditional means no strings attached. He makes this unconditional promise to Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation, the nation of Israel. And then he makes this promise to the people of Israel, I'm going to give you this land, you're going to dwell in the land of Canaan forever. And in this land... You're going to start to have these rulers, these kings. And he tells David, remember King David, only a boy named David. He says, from King David's line, there'll be a king who will sit on the throne forever. This is the promised Messiah who will come and rescue them from their physical enemies and rule and reign from Jerusalem over the rest of the known earth for eternity. This is the promise that he made to them. This man from Nazareth comes. His name's Jesus, and he claims to be this Messiah, and he offers the kingdom to Israel. But Israel, as a nation, as a nation, reject Jesus' claim to be God, to be that Messiah, and they reject his kingdom offer, and they say, you're blaspheming to be saying that you are God. And not only do they reject his offer, they crucify him on a cross. They kill him because of this blasphemous claim. And now Paul, here in the book of Romans, he wants to establish 
his gospel message to this church at Rome, which is God's powerful plan to save mankind through the very man that the Jewish people had killed. But he wants to pause here in Romans 9 through 11 and answer the question, but wait, what about Israel? What about Israel? And we see this this next section here. We started last week, 9 through 11. He wants to ask, why did God reject Israel? And, And how is this? He wants to show that God is right in his plan, not just in human history, but specifically with the Jewish nation. And we saw last week, we saw last week that God is sovereign. We talked about the fact that he is in control of all things, that God is right because he has the right to do whatever he wants. Now, the good news is God is always just in what he does, but what he showed us last week is God never promised that every single person born from Abraham would be a part of this specific covenant people. He said it was Isaac, not Ishmael. It was Jacob, not Esau. But what he said I will sovereignly do is preserve a remnant. I will show mercy to a specific group of people throughout all of history, and we've seen that. Through their exiles, he preserved a remnant. Through the Holocaust, he preserved a remnant. And he will continue to be faithful to his promises. And next week, we're going to see in chapter 11 how those promises are going to come to fruition. This grand climax. God is not done with Israel. But this week, what we're going to look at, last week we looked at it from over God's shoulder. Today, we're going to look at it from over man's shoulder. Because Israel could easily argue, well, if God's sovereign, if he's in control of everything, then how are we to blame for anything? We're just the victim. It's God's fault that we're in this mess. Exactly. God's rejection of Israel is right. He's going to show us today because they rejected the Messiah. We're going to look at man's responsibility for the predicament they're in today. So let's look at Paul's premise here, verses 1 through 7, chapter 10, being the ESV. Um, we're going to see that Israel is responsible for their own rejection. And if you're filling in blanks, ref- they re- because they refused to submit to God's way of righteousness. And what was his way of being made right? Through Jesus. And they rejected that Messiah. They refused to submit to God's way of being right through Jesus, rejecting the Messiah, Jesus, as the claims that he made. So the first thing we're going to look at here in verse 1 is care in prayer. Care in prayer. Verse 1, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his people, Israel, is that they may be saved. Paul's prayer, he's starting here, if you remember from last week, he's starting out chapter 10 very similar to how he started chapter 9. He's speaking to his heart for his fellow Israelites to know Jesus. Now, Paul is about to say some hard things about Israel. He already has, and he's going to continue to do so. And so what he wants to show here is that he's doing it out of a place of love. It's been said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care what you have to say to them until they know that you love them, that that they can trust you, that you have their best interest in mind. Listen, if you just walk up to a complete stranger and go, you're going to hell, Ah," right? Like that's not, it's not typically a very successful mode of evangelism. Typically, maybe that's worked for you. I don't know, but typically it's not because they need to know that you love them, that you care about them. And Paul shows here not just his care for his fellow Israelites, but how does he evidence that care? In the fact that he's praying for them. My prayer to God is that you may be saved. And we think about, do we have this kind of a heart for the lost in our lives? We talk about here as a church to pray for your three. Who are three people in your life that you can be praying for earnestly that God might save them? And not just praying for them, are those people in your life that you're consistently rubbing shoulders with? to be able to show them God's love in the way you act and the words that you say, that we might pray 
for those, the way that Paul prayed for his fellow Israelites. The next thing we're going to see in verse 2 is zeal without knowledge. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. John Calvin said it this way. Zeal without doctrine, which is right knowledge, right? Right understanding of God, is like a sword in the hands of a lunatic. Now imagine that this morning over at Children's Church, we had an object lesson for the armor of God. And we gave your children real swords. Now I'm not saying that your children are lunatics. Don't make that connection, right? Some of you are like, oh. um, Would that be a wise decision? right? Your children have a lot of zeal, a lot of passion, but a sword in the hands of a child is going to do probably a lot more damage than good because they're not going to wield the sword well. And what he's saying here is that Israel has zeal, but they are not wielding the sword well. Paul would know this because he's walked this road. In Philippians 3, he talked about his own life. He said, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Here was Paul starting out his ministry, imprisoning and killing Christians. Now, he thought that he was doing the right thing. Just like Israel, when they killed Jesus, they believed that they were passionately serving God. It wasn't an apathy toward God. It was misdirected, misapplied zeal. And in the process, Paul and the Israelites were actually actively working against God and his plan. And we've seen this a lot through human history, where where God's word has not been handled well. And we've seen it do a lot of damage. Listen, the sword of the Spirit wielded well can give life, but wielded poorly can do damage and destruction. You think about the Crusades, and in the name of God, the bloodshed that was spilled unjustly. You think about the Ku Klux Klan, that, that they, there was a lot of things they did, what they based and, and what they believed was the word of God. Misapplied zeal without knowledge. And man, may we be so careful to rightly divide the word of God. So what was it that Israel misunderstood? What were they wielding wrong? Well, look at verse 3. There's a way when right can be wrong, when it is wrong. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What did they get wrong? How to be right with God. Salvation. He says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now listen, this word ignorant did not mean an innocent naivety. Where they're like, oh, I didn't realize that was the way. This is not what he's saying. This was all over their Old Testament Bible. This is willful oblivion. He says they, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, their own way of being right. Instead of coming to God his way, the key word here is the word submit. They did not submit themselves, place themselves under God's way. In their pride, in their pride, they so, just like we often deal with ourselves, so desperately wanted to be validated by their own performance, by their own merits, and refused to come to God God's way. You see, Satan loves for us to do things for God as long as we're doing it in our own strength and not his. As long as we're doing it in an attempt to validate ourselves before our God, to earn his acceptance and not to come by him by faith, not to come to him by faith. We do this all the time. And he shows, okay, if you want to go down that route, if you want to go performance, verse 5, we skip down to 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness, the way of being made right that's based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You want to achieve life by the commands? Then you got to do them. 
But here's the deal. If you're going to go that route, you've got to go all the way. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of them all. The law is not like a buffet, right? You say, oh, I'll take a little not killing, but mm, I'm a pass on the disobeying your parents part, right? I don't, I don't like that one. If you, he says, you're going to go that road. You've got to keep every single one of them. And the problem, of course, is that nobody can keep the whole law. No one can perfectly keep one commandment, let alone all of them. And Paul has established that in Romans 1 through 3 our just condemnation because of our sin. And Israel should know this. I mean, you read the Old Testament. It's story after story after story of them epically failing to keep God's commands. He says you can't do it. And that was never the intent of the law. The intent of the law, you go back up to verse 4, was to lead, us pe- to lead people to Jesus. The law leads to Jesus. Verse 4, for the, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law, which was God's perfect standard of how to be holy, it was meant to show Israel, Israel how desperately fall, far short they fell of this law. And, and, and that's the reason that in that law, part of the law was this sacrificial system. This sacrificial system of killing other animals in their place to show them that someone else needs to come to die for you. Someone else is going to need to be righteous for you. A deliverer. To come and Jesus, when he came and he kept the law like no one else ever could, and he took the punishment for them. That's the way to salvation. That's the, God's way of being made right. And so, what Paul wants to show them here in the rest of chapter three is three reasons, or chapter ten is three reasons why Israel is responsible for the current state of rejection that they find themselves in as a nation, and it all had to do with what they did with the person of Jesus, this Messiah. So let's look at these three things. First of all, the gospel is within reach of them all. The gospel is within reach of them all. Now Paul here, for a little while, he's actually been quoting from Deuteronomy 30. You go back and read verses 10 through 14 of Deuteronomy 30, and he's riffing on on Deuteronomy 30. Now this is a brilliant move by Paul that would be easy for us to miss, because he's quoting their boy, Moses. Like they believe, they say God's plan, his special revelation to us came in that Old Testament, especially the first five books written by Moses. And so Paul's going to use their own words, their own Bible to show them, man, this whole thing has been pointing to Jesus the entire way. And he says here in verse eight, what does it say? The it is referencing this, this reference, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30. He's quoting it. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here's what he's saying. One of the most delightfully entertaining, entertaining aspects of my week is, is when I substitute teach at KBH Elementary. Sometimes I can empathize with this, this poor lady on the screen. Uh, on Monday, I was with a third grade class, and it was almost recess time. And um, in order to go to recess, they had to finish their assignment. And this one little boy, uh, all he had to do was put his name on his paper. That's all. And for some inexplicable reason, he refused this little ray of sunshine just plants his feet in the ground and says, no. And then he has the audacity to turn it on me. He goes, you're not letting me go to recess. I said, mm, I respectfully take a different point of view. Listen, the only thing between you and salvation from recess hell is to write your name on your paper. And you know your name right? It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. All you have to do is write it down in the paper. I will tell you to spell it if for some reason you forgot it. I will even grab your hand and do it with you. But you know what he did instead of writing his name? He dropped to the floor and threw a temper tantrum. And I was thinking about the words of the Psalms, the children are a blessing from the Lord, and I'm like, (laughs) 
I don't know, was that inspired? I don't know, I don't know. Listen, no Jew can claim, man, God made this too hard for us. That God just set the bar, he set the cookies too high on the shelf. They cannot blame God for their situation. The gospel was well within reach of the Jewish people. He says this word of faith, the way to come to God, is in your mouth and it's in your heart. Jesus was being pointed to all through the Old Testament. These people have known the way their entire existence. So how is one saved? How is right standing before God achieved? What's in their mouth? What's in their heart? Well, you know the verse if you've been to church very long. Verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the way. This is the way. Now listen, this is not a two-step process. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Okay, what he's showing here, these are, these are two ways of saying the same thing. Confess means to agree. That we are by faith agreeing with God who Jesus is for us. Because see, these, these two aspects, they, they go hand in hand. Like, I can't confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and not believe it in my heart. That's hypocrisy. That's not saving faith. On the other hand, I couldn't just believe it in my heart and not confess it. If, if, we, are, if we deny Christ, it's evident that we don't believe the thing in our heart. The mouth confesses what the heart believes, and the heart believes what the, what the mouth confesses. No true believer will not call out for God's rescue. And what it is that they're to confess here specifically, he says, Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul knows exactly what he's doing with his Jewish audience, because the word here is from the Greek Old Testament, kurios. That's the word for Lord. And in, in their Old Testament, this is the word that they translated as Yahweh, which is God's personal name. He says, if you want to be saved, then you have to believe and confess that Jesus is God. And that's exactly what they rejected and claimed blasphemy for Jesus and why they killed him, because they knew he was claiming to be God and they didn't believe it. He says, if you want to be saved, you must confess that Jesus is God, because if Jesus wasn't God, he could not be the perfect substitute. He would not have been able to keep the law perfectly. You must confess he's God, and then you must believe that God raised him from the dead, because if he didn't raise him from the dead, then he's still in the ground, and you're still in your sins. You cannot receive new life if Jesus is not risen. And so the Jew can go to eternal recess all they have to do is finish their homework. To confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That's not works. That's faith. And he says, not only is it within their reach, it's been offered. It's been offered to them and offered to everybody. Uh, again, Paul's going to argue, you can't blame God for this rejection. And he uses their own Old Testament scripture to, to prove their responsibility. He's going to quote Isaiah, and he's going to quote Joel here. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The cool thing about the Greek words here, everyone and all, means the same thing in English. Everyone, all. He says, anyone, everyone, this, this has been offered to everyone, and not just the Jewish people. Verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, this isn't just two people group, uh, groups in their mind coming out of the Greek empire. Greek just meant non-Jew. So Jew and Gentile, everyone. The gospel's been offered to everyone. It's only those who reject it that will be rejected by God. And then God explains, Paul's going to explain God's method 
to spread this good news. Verse 11, or verse 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is God's method for getting his word out. Now think about this. God could have done this a number of ways. He didn't have to go this route. He could have decided, I am sending to earth ninja angels to take care of my gospel. And once again, Google Images comes through. Like, I did not know. In fact, Lego ninja angels. It's amazing. He didn't do that. That's not how he said it. He could have, from a megaphone, he could have declared to the world, he could have just shouted it. And we could hear him audibly from heaven as he proclaims the gospel of who Jesus is. That's not the way God is communicating his message today. He could have tweeted out, right? He could have gone president style on us and just told us everything we need to go. Hashtag, call in the name of the Lord. Halo emoji, right? He could have gone that route. That's not how God sent his message to the ends of the earth. How did he do it? Well, you take verses 14 and 15 in reverse order. God sends people. He sends human beings out with this message. And then he says that these humans preach the gospel. They open their mouths. They confess that Jesus is Lord. Other people hear the message. And upon hearing it, they believe the message. They believe the good news. And they call on the name of Jesus. They cry out to him and he saves them. This is the way it works. The last thing Jesus told his followers before he left was go. Go and preach this gospel. Go make disciples. The way John says it, is as, the, as Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. They were sent, he says. Uh, Jesus, God, God puts his spirit, portable Jesus, into each of his followers and says, go into the world. The way my old Southern Bible school teacher, Dunn Gordy, said it, he said, you know we're sent as missionaries because in the Bible, the first two-thirds of God's name is go. Go ye. We said, Dunn, that is terrible hermeneutics, but it's very memorable, right? Paul is saying here, this blame shifting is not going to work. This is on you. The gospel is within the reach of each and every Jew. You've been offered it freely to believe. And his rejection of you stems from your rejection of the gospel you have heard. Which leads us to point number three. The gospel has not been obeyed by all. It's not been obeyed by all. Verse 16. But they, again, he's talking to the Jewish people in context, have not all obeyed the gospel. Have not all believed the gospel. Now some of them did. Jesus' followers, right, the people he was talking to that were following him and he was sending, those were Jewish people. It wasn't every Jew. By and large, though, the nation had rejected him. He says, not all, not all have believed. And Isaiah, he looks around. He says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He goes, is anyone, is anyone going to accept the good news? And we know from, from that same chapter in Isaiah 53 that the nation would reject him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, that the nation as a whole rejected Jesus' claim to be God, and they killed him for it. Now, Paul anticipates some, some arguments here. They're going to still try to blame shift, still try to avoid responsibility. And the first one here says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, if that's true, but I ask, have they not heard? Then maybe some, but not all, the Jewish people had heard the message. And Paul replies by quoting Psalm 19, Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and, and their words to the ends of the world. Now when he's quoting Psalm 19 here, this is talking about 
the, the heavens, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And he says, man, the Jewish people have known their creator God evidenced in, in the things that he's made. He's shown them himself. Remember Romans 1, we know his invisible power, his, his eternal attributes. But not only has created uh, revelation, but also specifically these people have been given his covenants, his promises, prophet after prophet. They cannot claim ignorance here. God clearly revealed everything they needed to know to be saved. It's not an issue of not hearing. He goes, okay, well, maybe it's not hearing, but I ask that Israel not understand. Maybe they heard, but they didn't get it. And here's his response to that. He says, first, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Talking about the Gentiles. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then verse 20, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. He says, look, if the Gentiles who didn't have God's covenant, who, who, who didn't have prophets speaking to them, if they have understood and received the gospel, then so can you. This isn't an issue of not hearing it, and this is not an issue of not understanding it. This is in your pride being unwilling to believe the word, to come God's way, not your own way. And then verse 21, he wraps it up. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He says, no. The reason you've been rejected is because you have disobeyed. You've failed to believe the good news that's been freely offered to you within your reach. But I love what he says here. He talks about the patience of God. All day long, he continues to hold out his hands to offer freely, graciously, the gift of Jesus, the one they killed, the one they were disobedient toward. This is not God being unwilling to offer salvation. This is the Jews' rejection of that offer. And Paul's been arguing this all Romans long. It is each person's responsibility to believe and confess. Now one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. But let us do that now while salvation's still on the table. Two lessons and then we'll be done. Lesson number one, your spiritual life does not come through physical birth. Your spiritual life does not come through physical birth. Paul is saying in Romans 9 through 11, look, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew physically. It doesn't matter if you've been born of the line of Abraham. That might put a yarmulke on your head, but it will not put life in your spirit. One thing matters. You confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is a picture of me and my baby dedication. We'll be doing this next week uh, with some of you. Uh, And this was in Indiana, 1984. Um, It was a beautiful thing, but I tell you what, that's not what saved me. That baby dedication did not put me in God's presence. I am an Italian because of my father. I am not a Christian because my dad is. I am an outgoing talker because of my mother. I am not a Christian, I am not a Jesus follower because she is. It does not matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter who your grandparents are. It doesn't matter who your circle of friends are. It all comes down to one question. Have you submitted yourself to God's way of being made right with him? Have you called on the name of Jesus and in your heart of hearts believed he is the only way to heaven? been said this way, it's possible to be a member of the visible church and not the invisible church. What that means is you might be counted in today's attendance. In fact, now that we got two services, you can come to both of them, right? Attend one, serve one. Heck, you could go down to the Bible chapel and hit up their Sunday night service, right? 
I mean, you could be a church attending machine. But being in a church building does not make us a part of the capital C church. It does not put us into the family of God. For that, we need to be raised from the dead. We need a new life and a new spirit put on us. And that only happens one way, through calling on the name of Jesus. Have you done that? Second lesson. World reconciliation to God requires world evangelism by us. This is God's method. For the world to be reconciled, reunited with God, it requires us to go into the world and preach the gospel. He said, how are they to preach unless they're sent? People are not going to hear the gospel unless somebody's sent. He didn't just say go, he said sent. Now maybe some of you are going, phew, God hasn't sent me yet. That's so cool. I'm so, I'll wait. I'm willing to go if he sends me. But what did he say at the end of John? He said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Listen, he said to every single one of his followers, I'm sending you. And as those followers made other disciples, other followers, those were also sent. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're also a follower of Jesus. You can't have it one way but not the other. If he's our savior, he's our master. And we do what our master says. If the master's spirit lives in us, we do what he did. And if Jesus was sent to this world to sacrificially proclaim the good news by laying down his life, then you and I have been sent into this world to lay down our life in love for others and declare the goodness of God through sending Jesus. That's our mission. That's our mission. We've been sent. So pray for your three. Who are three people that you can think of today? that you know, to not only be praying for their salvation, because it's God who saves, not us, but also that we might be the beautiful feet who preach the good news, to do the terrifying thing to open our mouths and declare the gospel to somebody. Father, if there's anybody in this room this morning that has not placed their faith in Jesus that has not confessed with their mouth, that has not believed in their heart, that they're still trying to come, they're seeking a righteousness of their own, they're trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and earn approval, or maybe they're just not buying into this whole thing in general. Father, we are not guaranteed a tomorrow, and we're not trying to scare anybody into anything. But your word is clear here today. That the only reason you reject people is when they reject you. The gospel has been heard this morning. The gospel has been understood this morning because of your spirit. And I pray that those who have not accepted Jesus as their Savior would today confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. And for those of us who are believers, who are followers, we have been sent. And I pray for those in this room that you give them courage to go tell people about Jesus, that you give them opportunity to tell people about Jesus, to be obedient to the call, that you have sent us to preach the gospel so that people would hear, believe, and call on the name of Jesus. That's the urgency of the task, Father. Wake us out of our slumber. This isn't about just living a life of comfort and entertainment, sort of living for the now. Eternity is coming, and we have to stand before you and give an account of what we've done in this world. By the grace of God, you've invited us into this beautiful mission, taking the gospel to the thirsty, taking food to the hungry, May we heed that call and find no greater joy than knowing you and making you known. May we have beautiful feet to declare your beautiful name. In that name we pray. Amen.